we are in the midst of a series in Genesis, and one of the things we said we'd do as we move through Genesis is just stop and look at certain uh, foundational truths that are important for us to understand, that sometimes maybe that are under attack today. And so we've been doing that the last couple of weeks. Uh, last week, we looked at the issue of gender. And this week, we're looking at marriage, particularly in some areas where this is under attack uh, in the prevailing culture. So we'll be doing that today. Uh, but the passage I want us to read to have on our minds and our hearts is from Titus chapter 3. So if you'd open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 3, and uh, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Titus 3, verses 1 to 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we don't need my words We don't need any human's words. We need to hear from you. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and help us to hear. May your word be clear. And we collectively ask that your Holy Spirit would work within us to do what you intend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible's plain teaching on marriage cuts against the grain of prevailing culture. For example, the Bible teaches that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Or as another example, the Bible teaches us that man and woman are not interchangeable within marriage, but actually have different roles. Some find these kind of truths shocking or uncomfortable. But it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible's wisdom corrects prevailing wisdom. That's what the Bible has been doing since its inception. So we today cheer when we look back and see how the Bible was pivotal in ending slavery We cheer when we look back and see how it protected poor laborers caught under the wheels of industry. We cheer when we see how it moved people to protect women and children and the vulnerable. 
But when it's our culture that's being challenged and corrected, we resist. And sadly, like some who are before us, we try to worm our way out of what is the clear teaching of the Bible. But when we do so, we resist what is actually good for us. So we want to allow the Bible to correct our thinking. But as we do that this morning, there's a mistake I want to avoid. And here's what it is. I don't want us to look at someone using a chainsaw to sharpen a pencil and to stop them and tell them, "Uh, while you're doing that, you should really make sure you keep two hands on the chainsaw. What I mean is, once we've gotten to the point where we need this kind of corrective about marriage, there's actually a whole host of more profound instances of unbiblical thinking going on. Yes, it's important we hold the chainsaw with two hands, and it would be wrong for us to keep quiet about that, but there are other ways our thinking needs to be reformed if we're using the chainsaw to sharpen a pencil. More specifically, I don't think any of us, no matter our position on homosexuality or male headship, is capable of thinking rightly about the Bible's teaching on marriage unless we first understand three foundational concepts. And what I think we'll find is that these three foundational concepts are, are every bit as countercultural and every bit as needed today as any specific teaching on marriage. And so, with the bulk of today's sermon, we'll be looking at these three foundational concepts. And once we have our heads right on those matters, I think we'll have our heads clear to think about marriage, which we will do at the end of the sermon. So, the first foundational concept is this. The world divides, the gospel unites. The world divides, the gospel unites. The world tends to push us to find our identity in something that separates us from others. Our occupation, our sexuality, our stage in life, certain life experiences. Now, this is problematic on two levels. First, it necessarily excludes people. There are those like us who get it and thus belong, and there are the rest who can't understand, who can't be trusted, and who don't belong. This is awesome. The world's world's system separates us from our fellow humans. But there's there's a second problem here. It's also problematic, the way the world separates us, because it roots our identity in something secondary to us. There is actually something deeper and more profound that makes us fundamentally human. Before you are homosexual or heterosexual, before you are male or female, 
Before you're a biker or an artist or an athlete, there is something more profound about you. We are made in the image of God. We were created with the highest and most noble purpose possible. To be a part of a humanity of image bearers that demonstrates justice, goodness, and beauty to the world. Like the soundboard of a guitar that takes the vibrations of the string and amplifies them, we humans were created to resonate the beauty and goodness of God so that His melody could be heard across the globe. We have divine breath in us We are souls and spirits. We are image bearers. And yet, damaged image bearers. Wrecked by our collective rebellion against God, we are broken and flawed. So sin, like a poison, seeps into even our most noble actions. This is you, this is me, this is all of us. It's the bully on the playground, it's the homeless man down the street, it's the man in the suit with his briefcase, it's the sweet old lady volunteering at the soup kitchen, it is all of us. We share a common call, a common purpose, and a common condition. That's why I read Titus 3 at the outset. Look there again. I'm going to read those first three verses, and I'm going to continue on all the way through verse 8. Remind them to be, this is what Titus is called to remind the church to do these things as it relates to the the, the, the people outside the church. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work, works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You see what happened in that passage? He says that we Christians are supposed to interact with people who are not yet Christians in a certain way, because every human shares a common plight as sin-stained humans. 
We don't sneer and look down. There are no insiders and outsiders. There, are the, there aren't those who don't get it or who wouldn't understand. The bully and the businessman are both alike. So Christians are not to be snooty or exclusive. Exclusive. Nobody has to belong to the religious club to be understood or embraced. Nope, we Christians are to be courteous and gentle and kind to all. You see how this Bible cuts with a prophetic edge? Because right now, in these words, it's actually cutting at many iterations of Christianity that fall short of this passage. Wherever you meet a Christian that's sneering at those below them, you're simply finding someone who doesn't get it. Fellow Christians, think of the person grappling with their complex and confusing sexual desires in the midst of our hyper-sexualized world. And they feel in that grappling like they don't belong anywhere. And they fear if they're just honest about the desires that are within them, they'll get pigeonholed and won't fit. If Titus 3 is true, and it is, the church should be the safest place for such a person. Because we get that we're all damaged image bearers grappling with the mess that's inside all of us. See, Christianity takes us all and unites us. The world wants to divide us. And then did you see where Titus went in verses 4 through 8? The universal plight of humanity is solved by Jesus. He comes to reconcile us to the Father, to restore us to our original glorious purpose. So the Christian message isn't to come join some good morals club. The Christian message is that we, fellow sinners, can all meet Jesus, find forgiveness, and then restoration so that we can again pursue the great cause that unites all of us as humans. The Bible is beautifully revolutionary. Foundational concept number one, the world divides, the gospel unites. But there's a second foundational concept I wanted to cover. It's this. Our fundamental problem is rejecting the creator. Our fundamental problem is rejecting the creator. We all have to ask the question, why is this world such a mess? Why am I such a mess? And the Bible identifies the core problem as something common with all our hearts. We chafe against the authority of our Creator. The pottery hates the potter. The created thinks it's no, it knows better than the Creator. Look at Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me. 
Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 to 22. Romans 1, 18 to 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see... It's saying that we are fundamentally opposed to the idea that there's a force out there that's bigger than us, who created us, and who therefore has the right to tell us what we do with ourselves or how we are to live. So because we're opposed to that, all we can do is actively suppress that reality to worship and serve anything but the Creator. It says that's why Idolatry is common across cultures. It's why so many worship nature or Mother Earth. But it also explains why we are drawn to reinventing sexuality. We reinvent it because it's one of the places where the Creator's design is so plain. Think about it. Internal desires and impulses are complex. They're hard even for the self to understand, and they morph over time. And they're not plain to others. You can't look at me and know what my desires are. But what is plain to everyone is our God-given anatomy. He gave you two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome, male and female. Anatomically and biologically, Male and female go together. It's plain. The procreation or the propagation of the species depends on it. The entire created world testifies to the order God has given. Our bodies, shaped by our Creator, matter. We are more than our bodies, but we are not less than them. And the Creator uses our bodies to tell us clear and undeniable truths, some of the clearest truths in all creation. And it's because it's so clear that this is how God, the Creator, has designed it that the human heart, according to the Bible, will be drawn to alter it. So look, continue with me reading in verses 23 and following from Romans 1. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see what's going on? It's ultimately a rejection of the Creator. But even as Romans 1 makes clear that rebellion against the Creator is particularly expressed when we reject His biological design, Romans 1 isn't about singling out any one sin. Consider these sins that are listed just a few verses later. Envy. Gossip. Slander. Pride. Disobedience to parents. Heartlessness. You see, the Bible's saying there's something ingrained in all of us such that we're born saying, God can't tell me what to do. And when the created is rejecting the instructions of the creator, we're not in a good place. When the pottery is so arrogant to tell the potter how things should work, we're in trouble. But I see this very thing happening in evangelical circles. I'll worship God in the ways that make me feel good, not in the ways he instructs. I'll pay more attention to my traditions and my experiences instead of the word of God. I don't feel like submitting. That sounds so degrading. So when God calls me to do that, within the order of society or within the order of the family, I chafe. God surely wouldn't want me to submit, even if that's what the Bible says. Who is the designer? Who gets the final say in how we should do things? If the answer isn't God for any of us, we're in a dangerous place. You see, humanity's core problem is that we are in rebellion against our Creator. And that's foundational concept number two, which takes us to our final, third foundational concept. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Our society says that the greatest good we can achieve is personal satisfaction. What are the mantras of our day? If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. You deserve it. And as long as your pursuit of personal satisfaction doesn't interfere with anyone else's pursuit, we're told we are chasing the highest good possible. You. Alone. With yourself and all the swirling and confusing desires within you. You left to have to decipher what you really want and then to somehow have your happiness depend on being able to pursue that. You see, the Bible offers a much more honest assessment about the human condition. It tells us that our hearts are a mess. 
an ugly mix of various desires, some more noble and some less. So Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Biblically speaking, follow your heart is the worst advice we could give someone. Instead, God calls us to something far better. As we've seen in Genesis, God created us as a special people who are designed to collectively reflect his goodness. Of course, our rebellion put a real kink in that plan. But Jesus came to fix that kink. And it's why 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you, speaking to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Don't follow your heart. Chasing some elusive sense of self-actualization. Follow your creator so that we can collectively, as God's new humanity, testify to something that is light and life. And yet I hear evangelical salesmen peddling a gospel like it's some path to your own personal pleasure cruise. The goal is self-actualization. The means is the gospel. The goal is to love yourself and to see how great you can be. The path is to unleash the power of God in pursuit of that. And in such circles, the worship service is actually a service of self-worship disguised as God-worship. The whole goal is to help the attendee feel special inside, to achieve some emotional peak, to feel loved and unique. We're motivating them to be the best that they can be, to follow their heart. But that is not biblical Christianity. And some of those churches might speak out against homosexuality, and yet they are drinking from the same fountain that gave rise to embracing homosexuality. They're patting themselves on the back while they do the very same thing. And I think the homosexual looks at such churches and sees Christians who are free to follow their own mixed-up hearts and to follow their confused dreams, and they see no self-denial and no cross-bearing, and they would be right to ask, why are you allowed to do it and I'm not? You see, the prophetic word of God cuts in more than one direction. Heaven forbid that we should shake our finger at people with a wrong sexuality while we participate in the very same underlying sins. Yes, this is a sermon about marriage. Yes, this is a sermon where God gets to define marriage and the roles of male and female, but it is so, so much more than that because I think much of the church has lost its moorings. The biblical foundation is even in place. And we're out pointing our fingers while we embrace the very same cultural currents that got us in this place in the first place. That's the heart of the sermon. 
I'm not saying we don't have important conversations about human sexuality or roles within marriage, but I'm saying the Bible addresses a host of deeper underlying issues, and we need to shore up those areas to reform our own mind and our own hearts. We took the same bait and are stuck on the same hook as those we might be condemning. But we do need to understand the Bible's teaching on marriage. Specifically, like I said, we're going to look at two biblical teachings that are the most out of step with our broader culture. So let's start with what God says about male and female within marriage. And we'll begin with a few questions that arise from Genesis 2. Why is it that Adam alone was given the command not to eat of the tree before Eve came? Why was it that Eve was made, that God made Eve from Adam's side? Why is it that the rest of Scripture holds Adam accountable for bringing sin into the world, even though Eve was the first to eat of the fruit? Is it because Adam's more important or better than Eve? Definitely not. We see from Genesis that both are alike created in God's image. Creation is, quote, not good when it's just Adam. He can't even do the task that God's given to him without assistance from the woman. Male and female clearly are equal, even if the roles are distinct. Rather, the reason for these events is because God created the world with an order. And as the rest of the Bible tell us, within marriage... Man is the head, which means he uniquely answers to God for the course of his family. He answers to God in a way the woman does not, which is why the wife is called to submit, not because the man is smarter or better, but because he's going to be the one who's held accountable. You might submit to your intellectually incompetent boss because it's the boss's job on the line with the project, not yours. Listen to these scriptures. I just want to show you how clear scripture is. Ephesians 5, and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And 1 Peter 3.1, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Ah, but James, we know better than the Creator's design. We've progressed beyond that. Have we? Perhaps we don't understand what headship is all about. Is it about getting your own way and making sure the missus has your slippers ready and the meal hot on the table? Is it being a cotton-headed ninny-muggin such that you refuse to heed the counsel the partner that God has given you provides? Is that what headship is all about? No, not at all. 
Because listen to what God says to husbands, the ones he's just called heads in the passages I quoted. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or again later in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, or husbands should love their wives as their own body, nourishing and cherishing her as Christ does the church. In Colossians 3, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Even 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Yes, headship means the husband answers to God for the course of the family, which means the wife needs to submit. But headship means loving and protecting, nurturing and cherishing. The man is supposed to create a harbor and in which his wife can find safety and shelter. So the creator gives us this beautiful picture. Husbands, create a harbor for your wife. Love her, cherish her, protect her. And wives, realize that your husband carries a unique weight and that he will answer to God for the course of the family and aid him in that. He needs you, but do it with a submissive heart that doesn't nag or needle him. Respect him. There's something unique in man that he thrives when he's respected in that way, and there's something unique in woman that she thrives when she's loved and cherished in that way. That's the Creator's design. It's not always native to our fleshly desires. I mean, the men are like, yeah, give me the respect, but I have to, I have to create that? Women, oh, yeah, I want the love and the care, but I have to submit. Sometimes we chafe at it, but it is God's design and we resist it and fight it to our own demise. Male and female are not interchangeable. We are created with distinction and beauty befitting of our respective genders. And we are at our best when we embrace that and enjoy the goodness of how God's made the world. Now with that, let's move on to the second way the Bible is out of step with the prevailing winds of our day. Same-sex unions, homosexuality. What does the Creator have to say about these matters? Again, the Bible is pretty clear. Let's start again in Genesis. God makes man from the ground, but it's not good that he's alone. So God causes him to fall into a deep sleep, and he takes a rib from his side and fashions that rib into a woman. And it is the woman, as God designed, who is uniquely, to use Adam's words, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's not two men created from the dust, and it's not two women both created from each other's ribs. It's man from the dust and then woman from the rib. And part of the reason the woman is needed is because of the command from chapter 1, verse 28, that says these two are to multiply and fill the earth. They need to reproduce. Man from the dust, woman from the rib, brought together so that they could, among other things, fill the earth. 
See, God's design isn't ambiguous. It's not like God needed to create mm, some sort of partner for Adam, and it just happens to be a woman, but gender's inconsequential. You can't read the first two chapters of Genesis and think that. And then it's right after Adam sees Eve and says this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, that the narrator for the first time in Genesis interrupts the story to tell us, by the way, this is the reason for marriage. This is where it was instituted. And Jesus in the Gospels points back to this moment as the moment God instituted marriage. Adam and Eve in God's original design are the model for marriage. Which is why when we got to Romans 1, that God says same-sex intercourse is wrong. It goes against God's, the creator's design. This concept is repeated in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. It's repeated in 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10. Now in saying that, the Bible is not denying the reality that some people feel attracted to people of the same sex. In fact, the Bible affirms that. It's true. And there are likely people in this room or who are listening who will feel those desires. God's word is not condemning you because you feel those desires. Rather, it's inviting you into a new humanity where our identity is more profound than just our sexual interests. Where our purpose is far greater and grander than just who we can have sex with. God sees all of who we are with our swirling and various desires and he says, don't follow your heart. It will not be good for you. Instead, follow me. In Christ, I can restore you to your original purpose. I can, I can cleanse you and forgive you and make you new and welcome you into something far better than the hollow promises of our age. We choose to embrace the Creator's design even when our desires chafe against it because we believe that God knows best. That's Christianity. And it's why this church is a welcome place for everyone, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your views on gender, regardless of whether you're the bully or the businessman in the suit. Because we all together share the same plight. We all together need the gospel. We all together need the rest that only Jesus can provide. And so I close this sermon the same way Utah closed last week's sermon. Let's all hear, all of us hear the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, all of us needed this word. There's not some subset of humanity that needed to hear this word. We all needed to hear it. We're all 
all a mess inside. Our desires, our flesh, our hearts are a mess. So thank you that Jesus has come to restore us and rescue us and forgive us and to give us again that high purpose of being a new humanity to reflect to this world what you're like. May your spirit help us who needed to hear this word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.